Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at several vignettes of recent victories against conservative governments implementing exploitative neoliberal policies that inspired people to fight back. We will hear from the recent elections in Chile and Honduras, the massive farmer protests in India, and the protest movement against deregulation of petroleum prices in Kazakhstan. Activists, take note. Clips today are from the Tom Hartman program, Behind the News, Democracy Now!, Vox, The Anti-Empire Project, and This Is Hell, with an additional members-only clip from The Anti-Empire Project. So tell me what happened in Chile over the weekend. Well, I mean, we had a pretty clear win. Uh, you just said it. Uh, Boric won the elections uh, quite convincingly. I mean, we're on 99.99% of the vote counts, very close to 100. They're just checking a few, a few last ballots that have observations. And he is uh, clearly ahead, uh, you know, 55.8% uh, of the vote in the runoff. Uh, versus uh, 46.2. So he's um, winning. He's, uh, the, it's a victory of the left against the, not just the right, not just the conservative right, but against his opponent, Jose Antonio Cast, who is a very right-wing figure, uh, who was sort of a Pinochet nostalgic, who said a lot of things that might, some analysts might consider as sort of neo-fascistic or, you know, extremely, extremely right-wing, a sort of uh, an, uh, someone who admired Donald Trump very much and who sort of modeled his campaign on the campaign of Jair Bolsonaro in, in Brazil. So someone who really b belongs to that kind of extreme sectors of the right-wing, who was defeated. Um, I think this is, this is good news for Chile. It's good news for Democrats around the world. It's good news for progressives around the world. Um, and it's, it's good news because the margin, the difference between Boric, the winner, and Cast, the loser, is much larger than a lot of polls ha had anticipated. And many of us feared a very close race. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, some people feared that Boric might not win at all. And if he did win, it would be with a very small margin. This is a convincing margin. This is something which obviously gives him uh, you know, a much sort of a much easier beginning to his presidency for sure, and is well confirms the democratic will of the Chilean people and the fact that he has a mandate to govern uh, according to his progressive and democratic program. So I think all around it's good news. I mean, there are challenges ahead, but it's it's good news that we got we had yesterday uh, from Chile. There are there are some who are suggesting, my, myself included that uh, history tends to, you know, move back and forth like a pendulum, um, obviously not always identically, but, but uh, that we tend to, uh, at least here in the United States, we tend to alternate back and forth between essentially conservative and progressive governments. Um, we've been in the conservative Reagan era since 1980. Prior to that, we were in the progressive uh, FDR New Deal era since 1932. Prior to that, it was the conservative, you know, uh, William Howard Taft, or, or excuse me, uh, um, uh, you know, back to 1920. I'm, I'm forgetting the president's name. Um, but in any case, the is that what's happening in South, in, in South and Central America? Or And I realize that's a huge area. Uh, you were the former foreign minister of, uh, or the minister of foreign affairs in Ecuador. Uh, we're talking about Chile. Are those kinds of, are, is this, is this a, 
let me rephrase this. Is this a battle between two people where personality won, or has there been a shift in public opinion in Chile, and is this happening in the wider region with regard to abandoning or, or, or uh, repudiating right-wingism and, and uh, you know, the, the so-called neoliberalism and embracing something that looks like what the Europeans call social democracy? Yeah, so I think that's a great question. I mean, I think there are two kind of answers to that, one more macro, more regional. For sure, we're seeing in Latin America a return of progressives and of the left in general to power. Uh, the first decade and a half, as you know, the first decade and a half of this century was marked by what a lot of analysts call the pink tide. So a number of left of center, some quite radically left of center governments in power in Latin America. And then from roughly, I mean, obviously it depends on the country, but from roughly 2014, 2015 onwards, you see a political fatigue, an erosion of the popularity of the left in a number of countries. There's also commodities decline, which creates economic problems for Latin America. And you see the return of the right. Now, I think the right got it badly wrong in Latin America. They applied the good old recipes of the near, you know, the good old uh, sort of IMF and World Bank-led recipes of the Washington Consensus of the 1980s and 1990s were aggressively neoliberal. And that's not necessarily what people wanted. You know, they just had a decade and a half of reduction of poverty, reduction of inequality, uh, of um, important growth, GDP growth, but also in some countries, constituent processes with civil rights uh, processes, with more rights for more people, et cetera, et cetera. And when neoliberalism came back, and particularly with the aggressiveness with which it was implemented from 2015 onwards, well, um, the right didn't do well. So from 2018 onwards, I mean, again, it depends on the country, the, the victory of, uh, of the left of center candidate, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador in Mexico was very important. And then the recuperation of Argentina on behalf of the leftist parents was very important. And then we saw last year, uh, after a coup in Bolivia, the left coming back to power, and more recent victories in Peru, in Honduras, and elsewhere. So we're seeing that pendular swing back to the left with the, that you described. And in fact, the, the rule of the right in Latin America will have been quite quite short-lived. It will have been one mandate, most, most uh, right-wingers not being able to re-elect themselves. So that's kind of the Latin American macro story. But there's also a Chilean story, because this is a, a victory that has to be contextualized in Chile's history. Chile was the laboratory of neoliberalism. It was done through an authoritarian way, through a military dictatorship led by a terrible man called Augusto Pinochet. And uh, it was the first, it was the most aggressive place where, where, where neoliberalism was implemented. And despite democratization in 1990s and early 2000s, and clearly uh, Chile is a democracy today, a lot of the legacy of neoliberalism, that inequality, that hyper-stratified society in terms of social classes um, has, has remained, has, has remained unscathed. And what we've seen in Chile since 2019 onwards, and you could go back to the large student protests of a decade ago, but particularly from 2019 onwards, are these huge protests against an economic model, uh, people taking to the streets. So I think Boric is also a product of that new wave of democratization, which isn't just democratizing politics, as in, you know, elections and parliamentarism and not going to jail when you, you know, freedom of expression and not going to jail when you say what you think, but also the democratization of the socioeconomic uh, base of Chile, which is, 
which is what remains to be done in Chile, you know, to really uh, move away from this really uh, unequal society in which a lot of a sort of apartheid state of rich and poor, uh, which uh, which Boric is inheriting uh, today. Um, so I think this is this is really uh, a very important. Um, I mean, that kind of democratization is very important, and it's a huge challenge that Boric faces today. the worst one we have had since the coming back of the dictatorship, like the most conservative Congress probably that's going to assume in March. So we know that a lot of the things that we want to do that have to pass through Congress are going to be very difficult and we're going to have to moderate a lot of our program points so that we can get some advances passed. So in that sense, it's kind of a downer that having this very progressive president, a lot of things are not going to be able to be done. And that is a worry because it's going to generate frustration in the people that voted for us. Uh, but in that sense, I think that the most important thing that this government can do and that was in threat with the opposite candidate, Jose Antonio Cast, was supporting getting the constituent assembly, all the support it needs to write the new constitution. So we, we're living a unique process in Chile since the, um, the social uprising in 2019 that opened this possibility of a new constitution. We voted for people to write the new constitution. It's 155 people that were democratically elected for that. With gender parity, we have equal women and men writing the constitution and with seats for indigenous people. So it's a very special and unique composition of this constituent assembly. Cas was always opposed this uh, this assembly. He wanted to reject it. He wanted to vote uh, against it. And then he is likely to undermine the process too if he'd won, right? Yeah, he, he could, like, because the resources come. In some way he could, and he could do campaign to say they're not doing anything because there has to be a plebiscite after the constitution is done to say if we accept it or we go back to the Pinochet constitution. And, and I think that if that Boric, like one of the good news that he's a president, that he's going to accompany this process and we're going to be able at least to get a new constitution that changes the rules of the game, the distribution of power in the state in such a way that like for the future, it's going to be much more easy to make changes. What happened with the constitution of Pinochet was that it had a lot of locks that made it very, very difficult to change itself to make reforms to the constitution. And that wouldn't allow us to get out of like basic things. For example, Chile is one of the only countries in the world where water is totally privatized. It's not like a public, it's not like for the, yeah, for the public, it's in private companies. And that's something that is going to change with this constitution for sure, for example. And of course, one of the uh, most notorious uh, achievements, if you want to call it that, of Pinochet was uh, privatizing the public pension system. Is there anything that can be done about that? Of course, Congress going to block that. It's all going to depend because, of course, like Congress will not support that, although the center has been moving towards changing the, the private system that was done during Pinochet. And there's even some center right that has said, like, accepted that it's not good because pensions are really of mystery. Uh, I think we're not going to be able to do the reform we expected to do, but we for sure are going to end with IFPS. That is the actual system. I think that is like the goal to do in this government. And I think how much we can pressure the Congress to, to actually vote in favor of that will also depend on social mobilization. 
how much people continue empowered, continue mobilizing and pressuring uh, sen the Senate and the representative house to vote through like for more progressive laws that has been happening in the last months or like couple of years in the social, since the social uprising. Yeah, what's happened with that mobilization? Is it still uh, exist in any sense, or has it gotten folded into a political campaign? You know, a lot of people say uh, that electoral campaigns are the death of activism. Um, what What is the relation of that activism to the campaign, and uh, what is the state of the activism itself? Of course, it's not like it was at the beginning that people were every day protesting in the streets, like it, it passed to another stage. I think that the constituent assembly process canalized a lot, because a lot of the leaders of social movements were actually elected and for being some of the people that are writing the constitution. So, so there was some kind of institutional path to those demands. What we can see from that uprising, like the changes in society have to do with social organization. Like it began like with massive uh, movements going to the streets, but then you began to see I don't know how you call it in English like cabildos, like people getting together to discuss politics and to and to discuss like the new Chile they wanted, uh, assemblies of people that become like very, very common and that has mutated towards like more and more organizations. So now, for example, in the constitutional assembly process, they opened a stage for social organizations to go to tell the assembly members what are the changes they, they want for the new constitution. And like hundreds and hundreds of organizations Organizations have been going with well-written plans of like why, I don't know, environmental crisis is priority or why immigrant rights should be treated in this way. And so I think um, it's not that it disappeared. It just took like a more organized way. Like at the beginning, it was very disorganized. It was just like the, um, the anger of people and like going out and protesting, you know. I'm speaking with Antonia Mardones Marshall of the Gabriel Boric presidential campaign in Chile. And the people who are activated by that, uh, those moments, are they engaged with the, this electoral process? Are they excited about Bort or are they looking um, elsewhere for um, real change? The electoral participation tells us a little bit about that. Like in Chile, participation is generally very low because vote is voluntary. So we have commonly like a 40, 45 percent of people going to vote on elections. And for, for Gabriel Boric, we have the highest a number of people going to vote in all our democratic history. Like since like Pinochet, this is the, the election that more people went to vote. It was like 55%, I think, of the population. So it was very high. So I think there is some commitment. I'm not going to say that it, it is all in favor of Boric. I think a lot of it was also against fascism. It was also like the other alternative is very dangerous for women's rights, for um, for environmental rights, etc. What uh, this fear of fascism did is a phenomena of uniting the left wing, the left wing in a way that we hadn't been united in, in, in very long. Generally, I, I think this happens in most countries, like the right wing is very keen to joining through interests, class interest, and the left is very keen to separating because of like small ideological differences. <laughs> yes, yes, so we're yes. always like, we're always fragmenting, fragmenting, fragmenting. And now in this moment, I think we're in a moment of coming together because we know that it wasn't only the danger of caste in the elections, but now what comes is going to be to defend this government because the right wing, the rich people, the, the, the owners of the country will be boycotting constantly uh, what we're trying to do. So we're going to need unity to defend the process. 
Well, what does the left in Chile look like? What is its constituents? I mean, I imagine it goes from the far left to a center left, but could you just say what kinds of forces are arrayed on the left side of the spectrum? After the dictatorship, politics were demonized by what was the right wing and the center left, which we have criticized a lot because they also have perpetuated when they were in government a lot of like neoliberal and, and deepened a lot of neoliberal uh, politics. But you have like in this center left uh, a broad spectrum from the center center to the socialist and the, and the socialist party. You have people more neoliberalist and people that are much lesser. So I think there is like a. a a difference. And then you have the Communist Party that uh, has historically been uh, in electoral politics, but generally didn't pass the 5% of the votes. I, I would say that from the student movement in Chile that was very strong in 2011, and that we elected uh, four representatives in Congress, that like a new force began to emerge, that is what we call the Frente Amplio, the broad front. And this is the coalition that now won government. It's a very new coalition that officialized with that name in 2016. So it's only five years old. And where you have a spectrum of basically leftist and social democrats or or democratic socialists, I would say, parties and social movements. And we have done an alliance with the Communist Party and other movements that were close to them to create this uh, block that is called Apruebo Dignidad, Dignity Approved, or something like that you would translate it. And that's the government coalition that actually won the elections. We begin today's show in Honduras, where leftist presidential candidate Xiomara Castro appears poised to become the country's first woman president, putting an end to over a decade of right-wing neoliberal rule. While the official vote count has not been released, Castro holds a commanding lead over Nasri Asfura of the right-wing National Party, which has ruled Honduras for 12 years following the 2009 U.S.-backed coup, which ousted Castro's husband, Manuel Mel Zelaya. Xiomara Castro claimed victory Sunday night. We are going to build a new era, out with the death squads, out with corruption, out with drug trafficking and organized crime, no more poverty and misery, to victory. The people will always be united. Together, we are going to transform this country. Xiomara Castro's apparent victory in Honduras is seen as a blow to Washington, which has embraced successive right-wing governments despite widespread accusations that Honduras has become a narco-military regime. In April, a federal court in New York sentenced the brother of the Honduran president, Juan Orlando Hernandez, to life in prison for drug trafficking. Prosecutors also accused the president of being a co-conspirator in state-sponsored drug trafficking. This all comes as Hondurans continue to flee the dire social and economic conditions at home. We're joined now by two guests. Siapa Portillo is a Honduran scholar and associate professor of 
Pitzer College in California, author of the new book Roots of Resistance, a story of gender, race and labor on the north coast of Honduras. She's joining us from Claremont, California, and in the Honduran city of Comayagua. We're joined by Fareed Sierra, who's a high school teacher, has been closely following the elections. Fareed, let's begin with you right there in Honduras. Can you talk about the significance of the apparent victory of what will become the first female president of Honduras, uh, Shiamara Castro de Zelaya? Yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, the, the, the significance, first of all, uh, I want to say that uh, it's brought hope uh, to the entire country. I mean, it, it, people are celebrating on the streets. I was just—I just got back from Tegucigalpa. I, 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 I was there for the weekend uh, on Friday. People were tense. People were, were going to the stores try, expecting something negative may have happened or for, for the weekend. And when the, when, when the ballots—the uh, uh, first ballot count came out— People were exuberant. People were relieved. And even yesterday when I woke up in, in Tegucigalpa, there was this, this sense of hope in the country, which uh, people hadn't felt in such a long time. I want to go to one more clip of Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez raising the issue of the U.S.-backed coup in Honduras, with then-presidential candidate Hillary Clinton during a meeting with—that she had with the New York Daily News editorial board. Juan worked for the New York Daily News. He asked about Clinton's decision not to declare Zelaya's ouster in 2009 a coup. Do you have any concerns about the role that you played uh, in that particular situation, even not necessarily being in agreement with your top A's in the State Department? Well, let me again try to put this in context. Um, the legislature, or the, the, the national legislature in Honduras and the national judiciary actually followed the law in removing President Zelaya. Now, I didn't like the way it looked or the way they did it, but they had a very strong argument that they had followed the Constitution and the legal precedents. And as you know, they really undercut their argument by spiriting him out of the country in his pajamas, where they sent, you know, the military to, you know, take him out of his bed and get him out of the country. So this was this began as a very uh, you know, mixed and difficult situation. If the United States government declares a coup, you immediately have to shut off all aid, including humanitarian aid, um, the Agency for International Development aid, uh, the support that we were providing at that time for a lot of very poor people. And that triggers a legal necessity. There's no way to get around it. So our assessment was, we will just make the situation worse by punishing the Honduran people if we declare a coup and we immediately have to stop all aid for uh, the people. But we should slow walk and try to stop anything that the government could take advantage of without calling it a coup. So that's Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton, who was secretary of state, Juan Gonzalez, questioning her about why the U.S. had not declared what happened in Honduras a coup. Uh, Suyapa Portillo, Honduran scholar, associate professor at Pitzer College, can you talk about this 
U.S. history with Honduras, which reads, leads right into the massive um, flow of migrants from Honduras, asylum seekers, to the United States. Thank you so much, Amy. Um, listening to these comments uh, brings chills up my back because, you know, as a scholar and as a Honduran, we followed all those incidents day by day, moment by moment, um, waiting for the Obama administration to declare this a coup so that uh, constitutional order could come back to the country. And of course, uh, he didn't have that courage. Neither did Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. So um, the other thing I want to say is that this win for Honduras is a testament to bottom-up organizing, to people without money, without any resources, facing exodus, facing migration, facing great violence, took to the streets peacefully to say enough is enough. We are voting against a narco dictatorship, but also against a nationalist party against the and, and voting for the dead. Many of the social media posts from people celebrating almost in tears was we're voting for the dead, for those who perished since the coup d'etat. So um, the history, I, I find that um, the history of the United States has been a history of intervention. Uh, the 2009 coup under a, presi uh, a democratic presidential uh, administration was the most tragic 20, uh, you know, events of the 21st century in not just Central America, but in Latin America. It's a, a shameful moment in the Obama administration um, and also demonstrates sort of the U.S. lack of care for Central America. Right. That constitution that Menzelaya wanted to change was written during the Cold War period during Reagan. Right. It was a constitution that was antiquated, that needs change, that didn't reflect the community now. Linking Honduras to Venezuela or linking Honduras to, you know, was, was irrelevant. Honduras has a different history, has a different, you know, kind of, um, you know, colonization by, you know, United States politics since the early 20th century and even before. And, and you know, so, so it didn't make sense, um, you know, that, 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 that the Democratic Party wouldn't respect uh, the rule of law in in Honduras. Um, it, sadly, it ha Honduras has not recovered from from the coup until now, and this is how people are seeing it as a, a moment of hope. This is one of the busiest highways leading to Delhi. It's been blocked for weeks. Tens of thousands of farmers from the northern states of India have marched to the capital city to protest farming reforms. They've covered at least five major highways around the city. The police met them with tear gas and water cannons, but they made it through and have now set up camp in and around Delhi. This is all happening because Prime Minister Modi's government has passed new farming laws that will change how the agricultural industry has worked for decades. And in a country of 1.4 billion people, where agricultural workers make up half of the labor force, the repercussions of those laws could be devastating. In the 1960s, India, a recently independent country, was struggling to produce enough food for its citizens. A string of droughts made things worse, causing devastating famines. 
So the government stepped in to modernize farming and increase the food supply in what was called the Green Revolution. They brought in U.S. advisors to help boost the production of rice and wheat. Together, they ended up overusing chemical fertilizers, pesticides, and irrigation, causing large plots of land to become infertile. Many crops suffered. Some nearly disappeared. But rice and wheat production soared. And soon, India went from having a food crisis to having a food surplus. It was in this context that India also developed a nationwide food marketing system to ensure fair prices. It's a complex system, and it differs from state to state. But here's one way to understand it. It starts with farmers bringing their crops here, to wholesale markets locally known as mundis. The farmers then sell those crops to traders through open auctions with transparent pricing. Prices can also be informed by the Minimum Support Price, or MSP, a government price for crops like rice, cotton, wheat. The government only buys a couple of crops at these prices in certain states, but those prices can still serve as a benchmark. The crops then go to secondary market or are stored by the buyers before they are sent out for future sales. It's not a perfect system, though. Local traders uh, do end up colluding with each other. Uh, the auctions actually are not competitive bidding. But for the most part, the system works on a large scale because there's oversight that aims to protect farmers by giving them market standards. They've been designed keeping in mind the fact that farmers are the weakest link and they can be exploited in numerous ways. Over the years, state reforms have gradually redefined and regulated markets in different ways across India. In Punjab and Haryana, for example, they have become a vital part of the industry, and farmers here have the highest incomes in the country. But in the state of Bihar, markets were eliminated in 2006, and the farmers here are still ranked the poorest in India by income. And all of this is happening while there's a bigger farming crisis. The money in farming is disappearing. Since the days of the Green Revolution, agriculture has gone from accounting for nearly 50% of the economy to just 15, meaning millions of farmers already have trouble making ends meet in this shrinking economy. More than half of India's farming households are in debt. And this debt has contributed to a suicide crisis. In the last two years, more than 20,000 farmers have died by suicide. Because of this economic hardship, farmers have been asking for reforms for decades. But this year, instead of providing more protections for this vulnerable community, the central government went in the opposite direction. And farmers fear that the direction in which the reforms are happening are actually a direction of dismantling of the MSP. So let's take a look at these three farming acts that sparked the protest. Each of them deregulates a different part of the system. The first act creates free, unregulated trade spaces outside the markets. The laws in these spaces would override wholesale market rules. And although a lot of trade takes place outside already, what happens in the markets remains a benchmark across the industry. But this act will create two parallel markets with very different rules, one with oversight and another that creates room for big corporate players to come in unregulated. And in this dual market structure, the players in the regulated markets are bound to move out and operate in the deregulated spaces. And that is where 
farmers are going to lose out when these traditional spaces collapse onto themselves. The second act creates a framework for contract farming deals. Any business agreements would be strictly between farmers and traders with little oversight, giving farmers few options to fight bad deals. As these agreements increase outside of wholesale markets, they could further fragment the market and leave small farmers dependent on terms set by big corporations or be cut out of the industry altogether. The third act affects a different part of the chain. It eliminates the storage limits previously set by the government to control prices. Unlimited storage means that anyone with enough money can stock up. The problem is, without oversight, they can also start dictating prices. Altogether, the three acts invite big players into a fragmented and deregulated market that could lead to volatile prices for farmers. And by deregulating the markets, the government has also put out a message in the same breath, essentially saying that they think farmers don't need any protection anymore from the government. On June 3rd, 2020, when the government announced the farming reforms, it didn't take long for the impact to be felt on the ground. Wholesale markets around the country have already seen fewer crops arrive in their market yards. In the state of Madhya Pradesh, more than 40 markets have lost business. Trading has moved out of regulated market spaces, and it is not as though good prices are being fetched by farmers. And this is the context in which farmers' anger has to be understood. They didn't get what they wanted, and what was thrust down upon them is very different from what they were asking for. It's been an incredible week, and uh, it's really hard to kind of put into words um, the the sort of combination of feelings and, and hopes um, and concerns that I went through, and I'm sure lots of other people went through. Um, and yet, all we have is words, so we must we must try to make sense of it, right? Um, so, uh, I, I got the the news on Thursday night, um, and with anything involving the Indian government, one has you know, huge amounts of disbelief and um, you know suspicion um, because there is so much misinformation and so many sort of feints and fakes out there. So, so to me, it was just you know, okay, something has occurred. It seems like there's been a, an announcement, um, but we have to investigate its providence and we have to kind of see. Very quickly, I started getting kind of flooded with messages and it was more and more and different people in different sites. And so that's when um, I started to kind of take it seriously and looked through uh, some of the news sites that were carrying uh, Modi's uh, broadcast. And... Uh, because of what we've all gone through this last year with this protest, uh, it, it was, you know, those were my first thoughts that we have to stay vigilant. Um, you know, any number of things could be happening. So let's sort of hold the euphoria and hold that anger together um, and keep our eye on the, on the kind of larger prize. Um, and then by Friday morning, uh, when it looked like this was sort of actually a legit, um, you know, occurrence, uh, then, then there was a kind of rush of emotion, and and then and then a kind of parallel scramble to do more sense making. What is this? What are the implications? How did this happen? Uh, and I think I've been sort of in that space for the last uh, you know five or six days, making sense of this moment, feeling the euphoria, uh, and trying to kind of put it in a larger context. 
But this was another point I, I kind of mentioned somewhere else about we don't in the West, I think, know how to engage in a sustained struggle. We get like struggle yeah. fatigue very quickly. Uh, usually there are exceptions, of course, and, and there's incredible, like, especially First Nations mobilizations that are sustained, but otherwise, or, you know, pipeline access stuff, there, there are sustained struggles, but by and large, our sort of mode is a kind of protest and expression, and then you sort of go home. Here, it's a sustained movement. And there were a lot of people that sort of fell off and sort of got disinterested and were like, all right, well, what's the next hot thing? And of course, people have a right to be interested in whatever they want and, and intention spans being what they are, you know, people can take on different things. But there was this kind of lull. And I think it was just the committed people that were like, we're not going to let this fall off the agenda. Right. The people are struggling there. But in this sort of online writing, yeah. speaking world, people were still engaging in stuff. So that I think happened throughout the summer and especially in the fall. There was a couple of key elections in Bengal, yeah. in Damanad in UP in the municipal elections where the BJP suffered sort of defeats. And I think then the sort of mobilization for the elections that are coming up in the next uh, year, the five states that are going up for elections, there was a kind of eye on that. So there's a lot of kind of churning and throughout the protest sites remain disciplined and organized and committed. And I think that's where we should kind of see the government was all out of options. They had kind of depleted their reservoir of dirty tricks and delegitimization, yeah. and they were sort of forced to make this massive concession. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, the issues, if we can, you know, if we can, if we can get to the issues, like mm-hmm. it, it kind of boils down to um, support for agriculture and whether, whether there's going to be, an ultimate kind of like guarantee that there's going to be a state procurement if, you know, given the buffering of agriculture and the climate and the way things go up and down with agricultural prices and world markets. And so um, you, you've written, you know, before we even talked last time, you were talking about how the Indian state after independence set up a system just, and all the system was designed to do was, make the worst of the British imperial famines kind of go away. And they succeeded at that. Um, but that's what they're trying to remove because of the po- possibility of profits. And and also, you know, when I looked into it, it's, it's also like a longstanding uh, campaign of the U.S. and the European Union to have India um, have that all be privatized. So they're repealing the bills, but... Um, You've been posting stuff, and I, I saw this thing uh, where they're saying like the minimum support price. Uh, you know, it's it's and and the agri- government agricultural procurement has to be expanded. It has to, you know, it, it you can't just say like, "Cool, you repealed repealed the bills." So, like, what are what are some of the debates and discussions going on about like what what happens now? Yeah, so this was you know a kind of um, a knife to one's throat, right? Um, and uh, with the repeal of the bills, I think it's going to happen on the 29th in the, in the session in Parliament, that immediate sort of existential threat will be removed. But the status quo was a disaster um, by all accounts, especially in Punjab and Haryana, but, but throughout the country. But just in Punjab and Haryana, you know, the, the water table was plummeting, the soil was degrading, 
farmer suicides, you know, land fragmentation, all sorts of inequities. So it was nothing, there was no, you know, the status quo itself was, was um, unsustainable and disastrous. And so the removing of this existential threat means that we're still back in a kind of crisis mode. Now, what the government was trying to do was, as you said, sort of um, dismantle a public system of procurement by creating a kind of parallel private arena, um, which would thrust people back into volatility and poverty. Now, that system, by and large, is only sort of intact and existent in Punjab and Haryana to an extent, Rajasthan and Western UP, where farmers are able to avail themselves of these two sort of things or two mechanisms. One is the minimum support price. And the second is the infrastructure to actually buy crops at that price. Right. The so-called mundies. And without, yeah, right. without that, um, so they, they kept arguing, the government argued that there will still be an, a, a minimum support price, but they're just dismantling all the, all the markets. Right. So right. they would dismantle the markets and they would allow private players in. And yeah. then after a couple of years, they would sort of do away with it all. So that yeah. has been averted. But the, but the point is that those two mechanisms, the struggle, the turn of the struggle, is to extend those across the country. That no farmer should just be a, a hostage to, you know, market fluctuation. Um, and, and instead, if you have, and there is MSP support. So even if Punjab and Haryana farmers mostly get the MSP, huge numbers of farmers across the country are aware of what MSP is. And they're aware they're not getting it. So if you set up an MSP system across the country, you grow what is ecologically sound and you have the infrastructure to actually buy those, uh, that produce, you can ensure the well-being throughout. And so the, the move, the most immediate thing is to set up a kind of law on MSP, make it a legal right so that corporations can't undercut and buy at lower prices. So you set up the infrastructure and the minimum support prices across the country um, and so every farmer will be assured of a kind of, of, a, of, a, of a fair price. This is not some antiquarian 1960s, 50s old model. This is actually what they're doing in many, many other countries. Uh, I mean, yeah, whenever people talk about antiquarian models, it's like you guys are trying to restore the British Empire's agricultural right. model. Right. How, right. What are you talking about right. antiquated models? Right, right. Or like the, 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 the whole sort of fantasy of like the so-called gig economy. Yeah. That is plunging people into 19th century precarity yeah. and uncertainty. There's nothing progressive and like modernistic about it. It's like a, not just like a neo-feudalism, like it's. It's like the worst cutthroat yeah. capitalist market-driven nightmare you could imagine. They're regurgitating that and repackaging it. So ensuring price supports and purchasing infrastructure is sane yeah. uh, and, and actually makes good ecological sense. It can make good economic sense. You write that the event that sparked the unrest was the sharp increase in the price of liquefied petroleum gas, LPG, not LNG, the preferred fuel for cars in Kazakhstan's western region. In Oktau, the capital of Mangistau region, most uh, automobiles are equipped with an extra LPG tank, which is kept in the trunk. LPG was much cheaper than gasoline and helped keep transport prices low. You were mentioning market reforms earlier. Why were LPG prices increased in West? 
western Kazakhstan, where residents depend upon LPG and its low price, which makes it the preferred fuel of the region. Well, the story is about uh, it was sold uh, as a market liberalization. They went from um, a system of uh, a few companies essentially uh, providing fuel uh, at a subsidized price. So the state was paying for for the markup. Uh, and then they turned into this electronic system bidding system. Um, and this essentially uh, allowed uh, the companies to to set higher prices and uh, compete at a, at a higher level of prices, and and this uh, in turn caused the, the increase in in prices. Um, so the story was told after the increase that well, it's the market baby, um, and one public official even said that if uh, fuel is now too expensive. Um, people should use public transit. And uh, for your listeners also to, to understand, uh, public transit is nearly non-existent in, uh, in the region of Mangistau, also because um, the, the vast uh, extent of the, of the landmass there, it's, it's really uh, huge distances and, and there's no real uh, neighboring cities there. So it, it was a kind of, it sounded like, uh, let them eat cake um, in, in a way uh, as, a, as a public outing. And, and this essentially uh, was yet another decision uh, that was felt to be external to the population's ability to make their voices heard. Um, so they were imposed this uh, another, yet another uh, decision uh, that affected their uh, purchasing power, their ability to uh, to survive, essentially. And uh, and this caused a protest. Uh, and it was, uh, like you said also in the introduction, it wasn't the first protest, um, but it uh, resonated so well across the country that it spiraled uh, pretty quickly and uh, it mushroomed in uh, several different cities in Kazakhstan spontaneously, which was uh, really unprecedented and, and really impressive to see. So is there a disconnect between political leadership and those who live in the Western region? Is there even a, a cultural disconnect? Uh, yes, for sure. There, there is a Total disconnect um, between between the leadership and the people. Um, sometimes this was also uh, highlighted by by the presidents themselves. They, uh, whenever there is a problem, they kind of reprimand uh, the ministers or the local governors, saying you are not in touch with the people. But obviously, they're not in touch with the people because everybody is nominated by the top. Uh, even local governors are nominated by the president. And uh, this is one, actually one of the main um, uh, requests and demands of the protests uh, were essentially give, it, give us at least the, the, the possibility to elect our own uh, local governors. That way we can at least affect that kind of local politics uh, dimension. And uh, and yeah, so and also, uh, like you mentioned, the the west of the country, which is the oil and gas producing region, uh, the one that is a, essentially a net donor to the budget, um, has always felt uh, left out and marginalized by the center, uh, because with that wealth is how um, the former president built. Uh, the, the new capital, Astana, renamed uh, after him, Nur Sultan, uh, in 2019, 
uh, in this glitzy uh, skyscrapers, uh, hosted the expo in 2017. Um, and, and that kind of wealth was transferred uh, directly to this uh, pet project of the former president, essentially. So if those LPG prices, if they had not been increased, how likely do you think protests would would have been? After all, they're like I've said, like you know, both of us were saying, there have been uh, protests in uh, Kazakhstan recently. Was there was something bound to have triggered protests, whether it was the fuel price hike or something else? I, I believe so. We had no idea uh, what would have uh, triggered something, but we uh, had witnessed, for example, in 2021, uh, an unprecedented number uh, of strikes. It's not about the length of the strikes, uh, but about the number. Um, uh, virtually all oil companies in uh, in the west of the country witnessed uh, strikes in 2021. Um, there's been attempts to record all of them, but I think uh, we've all failed because there are so many. And, uh, and most of them were essentially demands for better conditions and better salary. Um, and the pandemic also had a worsening effect, uh, obviously, on, on, the, on the people's uh, ability to, uh, to survive. A lot of oil companies uh, fired um, their, their staff um and and the conditions essentially became worse and this had was boiling was was boiling under under the lid of of this uh pot and we were expecting um that the people would have come out on the street uh i was expecting personally something like this uh, on the 16th of uh, December, when I was in the square in Almaty, um, the same square that was the theater of the violent clashes. Um, but uh, a lot of um, police uh, was met by a few dozen activists. Um, and that, to me, felt like, okay, maybe um, the the protest sentiment is not ready yet. Um, so you know, the situation will stay, will stay calm. And uh, lo and behold, <laughs> I was contradicted uh, just a couple of weeks later. In 1947, uh, a bunch of economists got together at, uh, on, in a hotel on a, on a mountain uh, Mount Pelerin uh, in Switzerland, and created what they called the, Ma- the Mont Pelerin Society, or Pelerin Society. Um, F.A. Hayek was there, Ludwig von Mises was there, um, and, and most famously, from an American perspective, Milton Friedman of the Chicago School of Economics was there. And they invented this word, neoliberalism, the new liberalism. Now, the European use of the word liberal meant free market, right? So this is the new, like, we're going to take ideas of free market, the government shouldn't interfere in markets, we're going to put them on steroids. And that's what they did. They, they, they basically came out and promised that under neoliberalism, governments would stop protecting their own nation's economies and instead turn those over to free trade so employers could scour the world for cheap labor. That the welfare of the citizens of countries should not be taken care of by governments. It should be done by philanthropy through churches, wealthy individuals and corporations. That unions gave working people inappropriate power over market forces. 
that only their employers should wield so unions would be neutered under neoliberalism. That taxes, which punish the productive class, would be cut to the point where morbidly rich billionaires would pay less than 3% income taxes, which is where we're at now in America. 3% is what, is what uh, uh, Elon Musk and, and, uh, and Jeff Bezos paid last year and, or the year before last in income taxes. Um, while rich, well, excuse me, while the working people who, quote, use most of the benefits of the nation's infrastructure, end quote, would, you know, therefore logically carry most of the tax load. Neoliberalism said that pri- public benefits like primary and higher education, the electric power coming to your house, your water, your septic, your roads, airports, stadiums, even highways, should be sold off to the highest bidders and then operated along purely market principles using the magical profit motive. And even the military and intelligence services would end up as much as 50% in private hands. The more privatization, the better. Well, we're there. But they started this. The first experiment was in Chile. In 1973, on 9-11, September 11th, 1973, uh, uh, General Augusto Pinochet, whose Senior soldiers had all been trained at the School of the Americas here in the United States, down in Fort Benning, Georgia. Uh, Augusto Pinochet rolled his tanks and his soldiers up to the presidential palace, where Salvador Allende, the socialist president, and about 30 of his close friends held the Chilean version of the White House. And after about two hours, maybe three hours, uh, Pinochet gave a national radio address and then put a gun to his head and ended his presidency. And thus began from 1973 to 1990, 17 years of absolute terror in Chile. And what Pinochet did is he invited Milton Friedman down and they put into place neoliberalism. This was a coup that was, that was set up by Henry Kissinger out of the White House on behalf of Richard Nixon, the Central Intelligence Agency, IT&T, which owned all the telephone systems of Chile at the time, and three big American copper companies, because Allende had just nationalized about half of, of Chile's copper and was using that money to give everybody in the country free health care and free college educations. And, and Nixon was like, we can't have this. So they went down and they flipped it. You know, they, they privatized the pensions. They privatized their Social Security. They sold off state-owned industries. They gutted the unions. They, they basically did the neoliberal agenda. And this was supposed to be the experiment to prove to the world how wonderful this is. Because, you know, next up is America. We're going to do this in 15 years with Ronald Reagan. It didn't work out so well. They killed tens of thousands of people. Uh, Pinochet was famously dropping dissidents out of helicopters over the ocean as a way of disposing of their bodies. While they were alive, he was dropping them. It's it's why the the Proud Boys like to wear these t-shirts that say free helicopter rides for liberals. I mean, this is is a time that is to this day kind of celebrated by right-wingers in the United States. But what happened? Inflation went to 341%. You think 5% is bad? The GDP fell by 15%. Because of Friedman, Milton Friedman's free trade policies, Chile's trade deficit exploded. Unemployment went from 3% to 10%. In some parts of the country, it was as high as 22%. So did Friedman and, and his neoliberal buddies say, I guess this experiment failed. 
No, they doubled down. Then they came to the United States and did it with Ronald Reagan here in 1981. We are still, we are 40, 40 years. Next year, we will be 41 years into our neoliberal experiment. That's the bad news. The good news is that Joe Biden is the first president since Ronald Reagan took office to openly repudiate neoliberalism, to say, no, we're going to go back to the New Deal way of government. And of course, he's getting blowback from conservatives like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema and the entire Republican Party, of course. In, a, in Russia, Friedman's Chicago boys went in and, and just, you know, took all the state-owned enterprises and turned them over to, to people who were buddies with uh, Boris Yeltsin. And thus, the oligarchy emerged in Russia. I was working in Russia in 1991 uh, in Kaliningrad, or in a little town near Kaliningrad, uh, trying to revive peasant farming because the, 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 the giant massive collective farms had failed and there was like hunger stalking the country. In Iraq, George W. Bush threw open the country, uh, you know, after he invaded, he shut down all the state-run enterprises, ended taxes on corporations, ended all the laws that protected the uh, Iraqi economy, threw it open, let any company, any foreign company come in, buy any Iraqi assets, including oil fields, and take all the, all the wealth out of the country and not pay a damn penny on it. it neoliberalism. Here, it took a little, you know, it moved a little slower. It took Reagan, like Reagan and Bush, 12 years to destroy our union movement. But like I said, you know, we've, we are at this point now where these two forces, progressivism and neoliberalism, are on a collision course in the United States. We've just heard clips today, starting with the Tom Hartman program explaining the results of the election in Chile, Behind the News looked at the opportunities ahead for the government in Chile, Democracy Now! highlighted the newly elected president in Honduras, Vox explained the origins of the farmers' protest in India, the Anti-Empire Project discussed the concessions that were forced on the Indian government by those protesting farmers, this is Hell looked at the protests that had been simmering in Kazakhstan for some time, and the Tom Hartman program explained the origins of neoliberalism and the legacy of that experiment. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard a short bonus clip from the Anti-Empire Project discussing the power of popular revolt and organization. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay. Uh, this is Zelda from Minnesota. I just wanted to to respond to the guy that said that it's hard not to hate people on the right, especially people on the far right, when they're espousing views that are hateful or harmful, especially the ones that like can kind of see that it's harmful but don't really seem to care. The thing is, is like I I agree with you. Like we shouldn't hate anybody, and we shouldn't we shouldn't wish harm on anybody, but. I don't think that we should uh, lose sight of the fact that 
they either want to do, like, the right-wingers either want to do harm to people on the left, or specifically people of marginalized communities, or they're fine with it, or, you know, they're too scared to speak up about it. And it's, it's sad, but we can't forget that that's, that that's reality, and, you know, love the sin, or love the sin or hate the sin sort of mentality as we may have. I think we can't uh, overlook the fact that we might have to defend ourselves. A lot of experts are talking about civil war. You know, you hear it on the news. I'm hearing it on NPR, which I never thought I'd I'd live to see the day that happened. And I don't know if it's going to turn out that way or if it's not. I hope it's not. But we can't lose sight of the threat that is in front of us. Uh, because I keep I keep remembering the book Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by William I think L. Shirer or something like that. I might have that last name wrong. But one of the points that he made in that book is that part of the reason Hitler rose to power and was so successful in seizing control of Germany and its resources uh, is because the left was asleep at the wheel. They did not take the threat seriously. They believed that a lot of what he was saying was just to curry favor with his base. They thought he was pandering to a certain type of person. They dismissed him. They all dismissed him. And we can't afford to do that. We cannot afford to lose sight of where the right wing is going in this country because we saw it on January 6th. And yeah, we saw a lot of Republicans come out and say, we should condemn those who did this and they disavowed Trump and what he stands for over it. And then a week later, none of them are saying that. They're all silent on the matter. They're all defending or obfuscating the point is, is that we know what the right wing is about. We know where they're headed, and we should not lose sight of that. No matter what, we need to show up to the polls and vote, every single one of us. And we need to convince everyone we know to do that. And we can't lose sight of that. And whether you love the, the sinner, hate the sin, or if you're just mad at them all. The fact of the matter is, is that we all have to show up to vote. We all have to make sure that whatever the worst elements of their party have planned do not come to fruition. We have to stop it at all costs. And I hope and pray that there will be a peaceful route to stop them, but You know, if they start, if they start that level of persecution where our lives are in danger because of the laws they've passed, we need to stand united.
Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. Now, once again, for context, Zelda is responding to my comments from the end of episode 1467, which itself is part of an ongoing conversation for the full context. You need to listen to the voicemails and comments found in episodes 1461, 63, 64, 65, and 67. And now I will respond to Zelda, whose point is very well taken. I would in no way want to you know, incidentally or accidentally tamp down political energy by humanizing our political opponents, or even sort of under-emphasize the dangers that many face by being overly academic about it or, or speaking about humanity at such a high level as to obscure the details of what we face. I definitely see the danger in that and, and don't want to go down that road, but I think that's exactly why I gravitated to the quote from the civil rights leader. Not that I was having this thought consciously, but if it had been otherwise, I probably would have thought it wasn't a good fit. But I think the quote from the civil rights leader was a particularly good fit because he was talking about how white supremacists have an illness and you know one just doesn't get mad at people for being sick, that sort of thing. And, and that way of conceptualizing people reduces your anger. But no one would accuse members of the civil rights movement in the 60s of being complacent or of not seeing clearly the danger they faced, right? So... I'm coming at things from a very similar direction, looking at the bigger picture of the structures and the mechanisms of humanity, but that is not an encouragement to ignore the very real dangers that we face. It's more about seeing the world and the people in it clearly so that we don't waste our mental or political energy on ineffective strategies when we do get down into the details. You know, I don't want people to waste their mental energy being angry about the existence of Nazis, because I would rather that energy be directed towards strategizing how to marginalize them into insignificance. And I don't want people to be angry at the existence of people who oppose mask mandates because I would rather they spend their energy looking for strategies to convince people who oppose mandates to help protect others during a pandemic anyway. There are ways to do it, but we need to put our collective mental energy into that task. So I'm a fan of metaphors. Sometimes they're helpful. Sometimes they're not. But try this one on for size. Think of yourself as a light bulb that is powered by your interest in politics. What we want out of a light bulb is light. Lighting up the room is a productive use of energy for a light bulb. What we don't want is heat. Think of those old incandescent light bulbs that'll burn you if you touch them, right? So getting angry about things that are unchangeable, wishing that immutable aspects of humanity could be different, fighting ineffectually with people on the internet, all of this is our mental and political energy being burned off as heat. I talk about humanity in a sort of academic, 100,000-foot view kind of way from time to time, not to lull you into thinking, well, you know, 
Nazis are a natural part of life, so I guess I'll just turn off my metaphorical political light bulb. No, no, no. I talk about the structures of our species and our society in that way so that you can stop wasting your energy as useless heat and redirect it into being productive and useful light. In other words, don't get complacent, get focused. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio Ben, Ken, and Scott for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes, all through your regular podcast player. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Um...